I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The long arm of HMRC gets even longer. Britain's missing mortgaged movers. Where have they all gone? and the leasehold property owner who found they had to pay stamp duty not once, but twice. Welcome to The Money Show, the FT's weekly podcast on personal finance and investing. I'm James Pickford, Deputy FT Money Editor, and I'll be giving you this week's money news in downloadable form. First, HMRC is ramping up its rhetoric and taking action in hunting down tax cheats of all kinds, facing an estimated £11 billion or more in tax lost every year to evasion and the hidden economy. It's come under intense pressure to show it means business. It now has a dozen ways or more to check if you're cheating, some distinctly old school, others right at the cutting edge of network technology. Vanessa Holder has been looking into the latest developments in this week's FT Money cover story, and she's here to talk about it. Vanessa, thanks for coming in to speak about us. One of the things that you talk about in your article is HMRC's ultra-powerful computer system called Connect, that it's putting to use in new ways to ferret out tax cheats. Can you tell us how it works and what kinds of things it looks at? Oh, yes. Thank you, James. This is the super snooper computer system, which it introduced in 2010, and it's generated billions of pounds of additional revenue. And it works by turning raw data drawn from a wide range of sources. It includes bank interest, credit card data, land registry reports into a goldmine for HMRC analysts. It's recently extended its data gathering powers and it's got the right to force businesses like Apple, Amazon, Airbnb, PayPal to hand over data. And it works by making it easier to see patterns, links, networks that would be impossible for the human eye to see. And it picks up anomalies between data, say, pointing to a lavish lifestyle and somebody's perhaps less lavish tax liabilities. And it's actually said that now they have Connect, the revenue knows more about people than they know about themselves. <laughs> That's fairly terrifying. But if I were to have lots of money I wanted to hide from the tax man, could I not escape Connect and follow the tried and tested route of stashing it away in an offshore account, you know, somewhere the, the revenue can't reach into? Sorry about this, James. <laughs> In a word, no. <laughs> Ten years ago, maybe, there were plenty of palm-fringed islands, alpine states that offered copper-bottom secrecy to would be available. But the world's changed and governments have put enormous pressure on tax havens to open up. And the new transparency rules that mean from September... 
details of offshore accounts will start to be handed over to HMRC. And it's already happened in some cases. Now, if you're an out-and-out criminal, there's something about you I don't know, um, (laughs) criminals will find a way around these rules. But for most people, the game is up. Right. So at the other end of the income scale... There are people who are, to all intents and purposes, off the grid, who've never registered on HMRC's radar because they've never paid any tax ever. What can it do to catch this type of offender? Well, when you talk to advisors specialising in tax investigations, they say this is one of the trickiest areas for HMRC. If you're not on the radar, you've still got a good chance of getting away with it. If you're not in the system at all, there's a real question mark over their ability to find you. That said, the net is closing. One example is that local authorities are increasingly demanding that landlords get their properties licensed. It's an effort to root out poor property management, but it actually makes life easier for HMRC because there's been quite a long tradition of people renting out properties not declaring their income, and the public registers will make that harder. Now, another thing you've written about in the past is HMRC's plan called making tax digital to to get the self-employed filing tax returns regularly online, doing away with that paper trail. Is that likely to help with this tracing idea as well? Well, HMRC believes this initiative will reduce the $8 billion a year it loses from taxpayer errors. It's theory is it will make it much harder to forget or ignore sources of income if you're collecting it electronically. But there is a risk this could be counterproductive. The new rules that require people to keep these digital records and make regular reports, they're quite onerous and there are fears it will make people want to opt out and could actually force more people into the shadow economy. Well, I mean, it's all very interesting, but Final question. Given HMRC came under heavy fire last year for not having enough staff around to pick up the phone promptly, do we think it really has enough people or resources to make the best of these tools? Well, it would say yes, despite the pressure on costs. The numbers working in enforcement and compliance have actually increased over the years. However, given the huge amounts of data it's dealing with, it might well struggle. And there was a bit of a clue to this last year when it was forced to scale back the estimates of how much revenue it was going to collect from a transparency drive affecting the Channel Islands and Isle of Man. Originally, it said it wanted to collect a billion, and last year it had to reduce that to just a quarter of it. And one reason it said it was less optimistic about its scope to recoup the lost yield because of a lack of resources. Disappointment at HMRC. Thanks very much there to Vanessa Holder. You can read her cover story on how the HMRC knows if you're cheating on FT Money later this week at ft.com slash money. Now, since the housing market took a dive following the credit crunch of 2007-8, it's been in a slow but steady recovery pattern. Homes in most areas of the country have regained their values the values they had before the crisis, and in areas like London, they've far surpassed them. But one element of the market that is still substantially down from a decade ago is mortgage lending, and much of this is accounted for by those who already own homes staying put rather than moving on in the numbers they used to. New research commissioned by the Council of Mortgage Lenders, now called UK Finance, with Neil Hudson, a housing market analyst, has delved into who these missing mortgaged home buyers are and why they're not moving up the ladder as they used to. Joining me to discuss the work is Mohammed Jamai, senior economist at UK Finance. 
Thanks for coming in, Mohammed. What did you discover in your research? So before the financial crisis, we would see on average about 1.6 million properties changing hands every year. Over the last few years, we've only seen 1.2 million transactions a year. So that's a 400,000 shortfall. And the research that we commissioned found that the majority of this 400,000 is actually mortgage home movers. So these aren't first-time buyers or buy-to-let landlords. These are people who already own their homes that haven't been moving. So we would have typically expected to see them move year in, year out, but we've not been seeing that over the last few years. What do you think is stopping them moving? So the research identified two main reasons for this shortfall. The first is that the pool of mortgage home movers is smaller, so the potential number that could that could move in a year is, is fewer. And the second is that potential movers are finding it much harder to build up equity, as they might have done in the past, and so that makes it much harder for them to make the next step up. So they would typically be trading up. But if you imagine a housing ladder, the, the sort of the example that we typically give is that the ladders have become further apart from each other. The rungs. The run. The, yes, exactly. <laughs> and why is the pool of home buyers smaller? Is it just because of the effects of the financial crisis on shrinking the market? Part of it is that. Part of it is the fact that people who would have been mortgage movers are now cash movers. So that's one factor that there's people moving with cash rather than with with a mortgage. And the other reason is that fewer people are making it onto the housing ladder. So there's a few first-time buyers who would then go go on to be movers. I was going to say, you know, we always hear about this in the context of first-time buyers. Isn't isn't the situation just as bad for them? First-time buyers face a completely different set of challenges onto uh, getting onto the housing ladder. Their challenges typically revolve around finding a large enough deposit. And our data shows that they've received a lot of government help, so through government schemes like Help to Buy, and also they've been receiving help, uh, financial help from their parents, so the so-called Bank of Mum and Dad. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, their numbers have recovered far better than mortgage movers. Uh, and interestingly enough, if mortgage home movers had recovered in the same sort of scale that first-time buyers had, we wouldn't be seeing this shortfall. Mm. Could we... Could we put, lay this at the door of tighter mortgage affordability restrictions, do you think? Well, tighter lending criteria is no doubt one of the factors, but actually the, the main factor contributing to this issue is the fact that people just aren't able to build up equity in the same way that they had done in the past. And that seems to be the main driver of, of this shortfall as opposed to tighter lending criteria. So why is that, would you say? So there's a number of factors that would help uh, increase the number of mortgage home movers. So our researchers looked at sort of increasing loan-to-incomes, loan-to-values and extending mortgage term. But none of those are prudent for for our lenders. So one thing that we could see that would help increase sort of activity in the market is a period of sustained income growth. Unfortunately, given the track record that we've had over the last 10 years when it comes to income growth, that's not something we're likely to see. So when we look at the forecasts for, for, for activity, it looks pretty daunting with you know, mortgage movers not really shifting much over the next 10 years. Yes. Well, just one final question. You, you base your, your gap, as it were, on the number of transactions just before the crisis being 1.6 million. Given how bubbly we know the market was then, is it realistic or appropriate to say that this is actually the right, the correct level of transactions? Shouldn't we be happier now with a lower level? We haven't been prescriptive with the level of activity we'd like to see in the market. What we've said is that 
we wouldn't expect to see such low levels in a healthy uh, housing market. Uh, and just to give you an example of that, in the early 90s, we had a severe recession and a lot of households were caught in negative equity. And actually, the housing stock was about a fifth smaller than it is now. And even in that period, we saw activity levels that were higher than what we're seeing at the moment. And we don't have you know, the same issues that we had in the early 90s. In that sense, the point that we were trying to make with this research is that activity is low at 1.2 million, and we would expect to see it higher in a, in a healthy market. Thanks very much. That was Mohamed Jamey, Senior Economist at UK Finance. You can read more about the research in ft.com slash money or on the FT Weekend newspaper this Saturday. FT Money was recently contacted by a reader with a thorny question about the rules on leasehold property purchases and stamp duty. Our reader had some years ago bought a flat in Fulham in London with a share of the freehold. They want now to extend the lease, but they've been told that depending on how the transaction is valued, they may have to pay stamp duty land tax on the leasehold extension. But that will mean they will have paid stamp duty twice, which to our reader, and I expect to many of our listeners, seems quite wrong. I'm joined in the studio by George Calvert, residential real estate solicitor at law firm Pemberton Greenish. George, I'm hoping you're going to be able to help us uh, unpack this one. So is our reader right? If you extend a leasehold... Do you have to pay stamp duty? The starting point is, yeah, I'm afraid so. <laughs> that is the, you know, you, you pay your stamp duty, a land tax, on the amount that you pay for your new lease when you extend it. So the the only thing I would say about it, though, is you say it's unfair, but from one point of view, if you're buying a short lease, you would pay less than if you're buying a longer lease, if it's, you know, the years add up to a certain amount. Then you pay for your lease extension, and you're the because of the way the SDLT rates work, you're going to pay a lower rate on the amount that you pay for your lease extension than you did for, say, that additional amount that you would have paid on the purchase. I see. So it's a sort of degree of ownership. That's interesting. So is it the case that there might be different types of leasehold and, and that this would affect the amount of stamp duty owed, or is, is that not right? It's more, it's more that there's not really different types of leaseholds. There's different ways that you can extend your lease, either voluntarily or through the statutory route. But the, the end result is effectively the same from stamp duty point of view. You, you, pay, your, you pay your stamp duty on what you uh, pay for your new lease. There are, you know, if it's a voluntary deal and there are certain mechanisms in place, you may be able to avoid any stamp duty. Yeah. So, of course, the situation is even worse for you if your property is a second home or a buy-to-let home, isn't it? It could be, yes. The 3% surcharge that came in um, last year, there was it, it could be even worse than that now because the basis for this 3% surcharge, I think everybody knows, was meant to target second homes and buy-to-lets. And so when people were extending their leases on their main residence... The accepted wisdom, if you will, was that you wouldn't have to pay the additional 3% on your main residence. So maybe in response to that, HMRC then issued guidance which said, I'm afraid you do. If you own another residential property, even if you're extending the lease on your main home, you get caught. Ah, yes. An unfortunate request for clarification. (laughs) (laughs) So is there anything one can do to ensure one doesn't fall into this situation in terms of the ownership structure you adopt as a leaseholder? Yes. I mean, if you collectively enfranchise, which is where leaseholders join together and buy the freehold off their landlord, if you structure that correctly, which in this case would be a trust um, arrangement, then you, you avoid any double stamp duty when you immediately grant leases on completion. So effectively, you complete the freehold acquisition and then all the leaseholders 
get 999 year leases at nil premium and because the trust is in place which avoids a technicality you pay no stamp duty at all well thanks there to george calvert residential real estate solicitor at law firm pemberton greenish if you have a story you'd like the ft money team to follow up or a question to pose to our team of financial experts we'd love to hear from you you can email us at money at ft.com tweet us at at ft money or comment on our articles online at ft.com slash money the money show will be back next thursday at the usual time a lot can happen in the next three years like a chatbot maybe your new best friend but what won't change needing health insurance United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Goodbye. 